Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. Hello everybody, this is Pej. We are on Pej's Recovery Corner. Uh, wanted to, I'm really excited today because I got a good friend on. His name is David Wiss. Um, Let's see, David is recovery nutritionist and dietitian and MS RDN, fourth year PhD student at UCLA. To me, he's a nutrition samurai extraordinaire, truly, like just a good friend and, and, and does great work in the recovery field. Um, he is also the CEO and founder of Nutrition in Recovery. Is that correct, Dave? That is correct, Mr. Peggy Pedge. I'm so thrilled <laughs> to be here. You're such an icon. Let's vibe. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Yes. Okay, so uh, so check this out. So the other morning at four, like 3.30 in the morning, I was in Los Angeles in my condo, and I woke up to take the dogs out to pee. And when I came back, I, I laid down in my bed, and I'm like, I can't fall asleep. This this is like a common occurrence with me. Like, I, for some reason, like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, and I'll just, the light just went up, and I'll just be, uh, I, I, like, I can't sleep. So my, my mind starts wandering, and I don't like to really get on social media. I started taking notes, and I thought, I need to put down some notes because this is a big deal. If I'm going to have Dave on the show, there's going to be some questions to be asking. And I know that uh, usually you just flow uh, whatever I, I, I pitched to you. So I want to say, first of all, welcome to the corner. Okay. And, and um, I talked to you about this a long time ago. I told you, like, when I when I start this, I want to have you on often, not just once, like often. Because as we start to grow this thing, I, I really believe that, you know, you're near and dear to my heart. And I want what we do in recovery, what you do in your respective field and what I do. Um, it's nice for us to come together and, and collaborate, however that may be. Um, <clears throat> I want to know about you, Dave. Like, your past growing up, where, where'd you grow up? Uh, siblings and family life first. Okay, before I even go there, I just want to thank you for the opportunity and for putting out such great content and for even creating a recovery corner where important topics can be discussed and voices can be heard. Uh, I respect you so much, so thank you for thank that. Thank you. Uh, you asked about my family, yes? Yes. So I was born actually in Boston, but I came out to LA when I was one or two. So sometimes people ask me if I was raised in LA and I, I have to tell them the truth and say no, but I'm from LA. I've been here my entire life. All my memories are from Los Angeles and I grew up on the West side. So right by the 10 and the 405, I went to public school and um, I, uh, I have one older brother. And so we've all been in LA the whole time. My parents live right where I grew up. So I have a real home base, not far from where I live. I'm really fortunate because I pop in on my parents three, four times a week. I'm 39 years old and I still spend as much time as I can, especially now as they're starting to get older. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's there's uh, myself, my older brother and my two parents who are all here in West LA. And I'm really fortunate to have that true. I know a lot of people have their families spread out, particularly in this last year of distancing has been hard, but I get to see my family on a consistent and regular basis. My brother has a son who's uh, five and I taught him how to play chess on, on Sunday. So yes, family is important to me and I'm really, really um, grateful to have them so close where we can connect on a regular basis. Awesome, awesome, that's so good to hear. Um, so I wanna know your earliest recollection of you using drugs or drinking and um, when was that? Like the First. Oh, let's just get right into it. Yeah, let's do it. Getting high. Let's yeah. fucking go. Okay, so, uh, my first drink, I was 12 years old. And, okay. Um, I was in the Grand Canyon. I went on a river rafting trip and someone handed me a beer. One of my parents' friends, actually. Okay. And it's a very salient memory. I like the word salient. It means that the brain assigns value to something. It also could mean that it's very memorable, right? So right. When, the, when the first beer I ever drank hit me, I literally felt it rock my whole body. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking on a trail, was walking on a trail and I didn't have water, so someone gave me a beer. Mm -hmm. I remember it did something significant. And I have another really clear memory. I got into all the other drugs, I've done them all. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you I must have been 17 or 16 when I smoked my first Primo, right? That's okay. um, sure crack Oh, crack, okay, crack. Mixed with, um, uh, weed, right? Right, right, right? That was a socially acceptable thing to do. Like if you're in the hood, you don't smoke crack, but you can smoke a primo, 
Right, you're, right. you're still cool if you do that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's how I entered into that space. Uh, this was uh, at Hamilton High School in the late 90s. We ditched class. It ended up happening. And I could tell you, Pej, uh, I could tell you the, the car that I was driving, the place that I was parked, and the song that was playing. And this must have been 1997, right? <laughs> like my brain, 23 years later, still remembers the song that was playing. Well, what was the, the song? First time. What was the it song? It was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. A, it was. A, it was an artist called Abstract Root. Okay. Um, and and, and I, I'm blanking on the name of the song, but right. I'd be able to pull it up uh-huh. for you. But um. I grew up listening to a lot of this underground hip hop. I knew right? it. So we used to make music. Mm-hmm. West Coast underground music was my identity, right? Right, so, right, right. Uh, not, not only did um, you know we uh, engage in uh, uh, cons- consuming uh, the products of music and graffiti and dance mm-hmm. and all that, we produced it as well. So Absolutely. that was a really big part of my early identity. Okay, okay. And I myself, you know, I'm, I'm a generation ahead of you. Uh, what you called Primo, we used to call those Cocoa Puffs. Um, okay. Whether it was in a cigarette or in a joint, like we, we call them Cocoa Puffs mixed with Coke. And during that time, and by 97, I was already knee deep in the rave scene at least a decade. So definitely, um, I know that era. I was in LA, I was living in and out of LA, either LA or Orange County. So I, I know the feel, like you, the way that you speak about it, paints the picture of, of it's very memorable and a lot of nostalgia. Like, I, I just love that era. We had a lot of fun. Like, I'm not gonna lie, we had a lot of fun. The raves were popping off too. I know you were kind of, you were going to the raves too. The thing that got me into the rave scene uh-huh. was the underground hip hop scene found right. its way into the rave it scene. Did. So like I was into uh, drum and bass and jungle music, mm-hmm. but I wasn't into it that much, right? But right. then when when rappers started performing at raves, right, right. you know, 1999, I went to uh, Oakland to a, my first rave was Metropolis uh-huh. and um, yeah, the, the rappers that I knew that I used to hang around were now on stage, and, right? Like this was, this was to me the message of like, no, 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 this is your home. Right. The intersection of the music you love, the culture that you are a part of is being pulled into this party culture right. where drugs are okay, uh-huh. they're encouraged, mm-hmm. they're endorsed. And it's not just a weird thing with uh, beads and pacifiers. You could be a raver and kind of a thug still. And I was like, this is my lane. That's right. And, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Like sometimes when when I speak in certain recovery settings, um, I talk about the fact that during the '90s, like we didn't have a lot of people, we didn't have a lot of motherfuckers overdosing on fentanyl or heroin. We, I mean, there was a couple of friends that got into the heroin and that were overdosing, but like this was the era where it was like it was the love drugs, like the straight up designer drugs, like the type of shit that would keep you going from like Thursday was usually like Friday junior. So we get a nice little start going by Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We're just going hard. And then like usually by Sunday, it's like the after party. And then we go to the after party after the after party. Right. And that's just, that was just a way of life. And then, and, and I did a lot of ecstasy during that time. So definitely like by Monday, it was kind of like my come down day. Tuesday sometimes started to become sort of like my, my suicidal ideation day because because mm-hmm. I think that I just depleted all the serotonin from my spine just from the amount of drugs that I was doing all weekend. So it was this was a, a regular occurrence. And then I promised myself, I got to slow it down. I'm not going to do that much anymore. And I'm not going to do it anymore. But by Wednesday, the thought started to, you know, formate a little bit more. And by Thursday, let's do it again. Right. And, and pretty much the entire 90s consisted of this type of lifestyle. And it was a lot of fun. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, we, we were going to raves at Orange Show Road, downtown L.A. I was throwing raves. This was a way of life. There was a culture behind it. We, I, I loved mm-hmm. all different types of music. And you're absolutely right. I remember when when like hip hop started to come in, especially the underground groups that we really loved. They were coming okay. in. They were performing at these shows. It was the shit. It was awesome. Like, how, you can't deny it. Right. So I want to know this. When did your drug usage start becoming a problem for you in your life? So my story is that, like I said, I went to uh, public school on the west side, Hamilton. I was very fortunate to get into USC. So I moved to the downtown area. By the time I was 17, I had my own apartment. 
Um, they, they, they made us live in student housing for the first year, mm -hmm. but a little part of my story I never tell is that I was so committed to having a safe place where I could get high. Right. I went to great lengths to get my roommate out of there. Mm -hmm. There was some mismatch and they tried to pair me with someone. I pulled a big scheme and I had my own place. Can you imagine being 17 years old with my own place in downtown LA, uh, ready to go. I got my little Volkswagen Passat with the rims on it, stick shift. I got the car stereo going on in there. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm like full force ahead. That's right. Um, that's right. And I lived a double life. I was able to be a raver and a d drug user and a transaction. And a USC and, student. And a USC student. That's so you were, you were in USC by the time you were 17 years old. Yes. That is a true story because my, my, uh, I actually skipped a grade. Okay. I don't know. I never tell that. Um, so academically, really, academically, you were already advanced, but you were also in a, caught up in a different type of life. You said a double life, maybe a triple yes. life even or, and more. Right? Um, That's yeah, right. It's a lot of hats you wear. So um, it became a problem during your time down there in downtown? I mean, you know, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that at the time, right? Right, right. In, uh, in retrospect, I could see that there was definitely a, a time when I crossed the region from which there's no return through human aid, right? Right. Um, but I, I wouldn't have been able to identify that at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really clear that once I started doing the drugs that were previously gross to me, mm -hmm. right? Th things are different. My mind's going to kind of spin the truth and rationalize the fact that this is actually what I should be doing, need to be doing, or choose to be doing. Right. Uh, but as a product of going to so many raves and taking so much ecstasy, I couldn't do USC anymore. I couldn't focus. Mm -hmm. So that's when I got into meth. Right. I needed meth to do two days, uh, uh, a two day project the whole semester mm -hmm. and get it done and turn it in so that I could still get a C and still be in school, right? Mm. And that was definitely um, not something I felt proud of, but something that I felt was worth it. So I was okay with, you know so, what I mean? So you weren't your typical student that gets uh, gets like an Adderall uh, prescription to be able to fo like focus a little better in class. You were actually, it was straight like street meth or was it Ritalin or Vyvanse or, or, or <laughs> you know. Yeah, this was pretty, pre-Vivance era. Okay. Certainly, I, you know, I, I, I sold weed to some USC kids who had Adderalls and I could get those for sure. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it runs out, right? Right. I, you know, right. like I had the blue nose. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How, how embarrassing is that to snort blue medications and have blue in my nose, right? I, I understand. Uh, We've snorted it. I, it was, uh, yes. it hurts when it goes <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it progressed. It progressed. And then, you know, I was a full blown tweaker at USC, mm -hmm. picking my face, not going to class, trying to uh, manage everything. Mm -hmm. And it, it's probably safe to say that things didn't get really tricky for me until I caught my first case. Okay. Because, well, I had money coming in. So there wasn't a real, like, case in my mind against it right, right right in my mind like if you're not doing shady things mm -hmm. right to to get high then you're fine right it's when you start stealing from your mom when you start having to do things in, in my mind the kind of things i use to uh generate income weren't shady they were smart right so during that so time i was beating the game right yeah i was beating the game i was winning do you, and, do you uh, think your your yeah. peers or friends or anybody like your classmates do you think that they knew like he's not well i mean when you're picking yeah. your face i think they call it formication like you think there's stuff there and you spend a lot of time just in the mirror uh picking and picking and picking but do you think like oh, there's stuff there oh there, there's stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> i'm convinced it's there and i'm gonna keep going until i find it i understand we actually had yeah. a, a five minute rule for girls that would come over to my apartment that you can't lock the bathroom door and you can't go in there for more than five minutes and we'd go yeah. in there and we'd find like a, a, a bath towel with like tons of stuff all over it that, from the like excessive amount of picking that they would do. So I, I, I know that way of life too, but do you think your friends knew that this guy's not well? Absolutely. And so the way that I work with that is like, oh, well, I'm just going to get new friends. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't need you. So my <laughs> high school friends, but let's be honest, it was a badge of honor for me. Right. It was a badge of honor for me. I'm not the one that was embarrassed about the fact that I use drugs. 
I was a proud raver, a successful drug user in my mind. Mm-hmm. I waved it like a flag. You catch me with a Burberry flask and a Burberry pill case. Right. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm prideful about who I am. So you had Down style. Out, yeah. I had style. I, wasn't, style. I was sure that it couldn't last. Like I knew the trajectory would be altered at some point. Okay. Right. Uh, I, I assumed that I would uh, grow out of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd meet a really good girl mm-hmm. and then, you know, settle down and then realize that, like, I can't raise a family and also do these things. So I'm going to choose the family. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, how was yeah. your, how are your grades? Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. So you weren't like I, some wonderkin like these. I've had friends that smoke crack in Berkeley, like this one guy, and he did really well. It was when he got out of school that his life just went right downhill because he continued to smoke crack and there's no future for a crack smoker. Yeah, I was on academic probation and, uh, you know, switching majors, mm-hmm. paying for classes uh, with my own money. So like super prideful memories I have of showing up to campus with like cash to pay for tuition. Like, like I was some legend. I was some iconic street hustler right. who was also in college and like people were so impressed right. by anyone who could manage these multiple lives. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, I would drop, I would drop the quarter. Mm-hmm. I would drop, it was a semester at the time. I would drop the semester, you know, at the last day when you still, it wouldn't affect your GPA. Right. That became the pattern. And so it's really interesting. You know, it's it inter- got ugly. It, it's interesting that you bring up academic probation because I myself, when I was about 32, 33 years old, I'm an artist by nature, like I'm an artist. Like I went to the Art Institute, I signed up to do interactive multimedia and and, uh, and I, I knew in advance, like I need to get off drugs because if I try to go to the school, it's gonna become overwhelming and I'm gonna just tank it all. And I believe, and this is what happened to me too, I got put on academic probation two different times in within a one year span. And, and then on top of that, the dean of students pretty much wanted me out of the campus. Like, you're just not equipped for the school. And my, my mom, of course, the nurturing codependent mom that she is, caught wind of this and like came to rescue me. And and we talked to the dean and they gave me one more chance. And surely, like during one of my final exams, I nodded off because I'd been up for a week before that. And that was it. That's right. They pretty much just didn't even want me there anymore. So I believe like when, when there are students that are put on academic probation, it might be a great indicator that there could be something that's not working in your life. Perhaps addiction is, is in the mix, right? So it's a, that stands out to me that you say that. I did not know that about you. Uh, so academic probation could be a good screening tool for early intervention sure. for drug addiction. Sure. I like Much. that. I like that. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you, how long have you been sober? And why'd you get sober? Why did you get sober so young? Well, I was 24. Yeah. I had, um, you know, gotten in a, a couple different instances of legal trouble. Right. And so, um, you know, consequences weren't sufficient to get me sober prior to any of it, you know, when I had my first, you know, set of consequences, I was pretty sure that that was going to be enough to wake me up. I was going to throw in the towel, right. you know, uh, it didn't, uh, it took a little while, a couple of years of that song and dance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I, when I got to my, uh, third and final treatment center in 2006, right. Right. I was 24, but I sure didn't feel it. Like in many ways, I felt like I had been through the ringer. Like I had just been on this 10 year kind of legacy mm-hmm. run. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I was also just a little kid. Right. I was just a little- 24 is still super young. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in my mind, I had been adulting for the last seven years and making moves and you know buying cars and all yeah. that, traveling. Slanging them things, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. I had done some things. And so in my mind, I, I, I was, I wasn't just a little kid with more stuff to be curious about. Like I did it all. Right, right, right. I did all the things. There wasn't drugs that I hadn't tried. You know, there wasn't anything left. There was nothing left there for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was pretty clear that the only thing that would uh, uh, be left was a long term in prison for me. That right. was really clear. No, no, you know, 
being in the system, it was clear where that was all headed. Right. So there was, yeah. at some point, there was a wake-up call. I mean, you said you've been to treatment a couple of times. Obviously, treatment doesn't keep us sober. It, it definitely, I think it's designed to uh, break the resistance to long-term recovery. You know, I, I, I don't know what where you went to treatment. I've heard you speak about it a few times. I don't think that really matters. But um, so between treatment and possibly catching some cases that were going to keep get you locked up for a while, you just had this awakening, like to where you thought I need to get sober. Is that what happened? Uh, good question. I'm sure people seem to like these types of questions in, in, in the recovery world. Like, did you have an aha moment <laughs> where you just uh, decided? And like, I, I, I don't have a really good answer there. I could say that circumstantially things piled up and, um, you know, my last drink was industrial hand sanitizer. Mm. There's a chemical process from which you can extract alcohol from the soap. And it's something that happens in places where they don't have alcohol. Right. right? And then I got to a place where I was like, you know, a little bit open and receptive to, uh, the idea that things could be different for me. Cause like, I was a smart kid. I had a high IQ. I was in highly gifted magnet programs. Right. I have a lot of, potential, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and I was able to really see that I could turn this thing around. I could turn this into something totally different. I could use my darkness uh, to my advantage at some point uh, to, to actually help other people. So you had, I mean, obviously it was through a gradual trend, like a realization, if you will, you know, where you, where you knew better. And I think that happened with me too. Sometimes um, often working in treatment, because I've worked on the front lines and I've, I've, I've seen a lot of people that are highly intelligent and they become too smart for the recovery process where yes. they've got enough information or they've got this figured out. And it seems like a lot of people that are too smart for recovery end up struggling the longest or the hardest or end up, you know, overdosing and dying, which is, which is really sad. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that uh, you got to that point in your life. So I wanted to, um, let's see here. I wanted to talk about meditation. Do you meditate? I do. And I've gone through periods in my 14 and a half years where I've done much more and much less and um, different forms. Right now, I'm in a, in a period of my life when I'm doing way more than ever, right. um, which has been extremely helpful. Uh, but I can say that in early recovery, mm -hmm. the idea of meditating did not appeal to me so much. Um, my mind was not quiet and I did not access anything that felt valuable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was a year and some change sober that I found access to the meditative spot through walking. Right. That movement, moving meditation was always going to be something important for me. In other words, I can get into that receptive mode when I'm in transit or when I'm in some kind of movement much easier than I can when I'm trying really hard to be as still as I can and keep my spine straight. Now that doesn't mean that I haven't evolved into some really quiet, uh, settled meditative practices, but that's what, that's what really uh, uh, allowed me to access the broad domain of meditation, which is that it's not just one thing. It can be a lot of things. Right. So, yes. so you, you talk about meditating and walking. It, we've been in each other's lives a lot more in the last year, a couple of years. And, and I, I've, I do know that there was something that you uh, were running a while back. I, I believe you had started a, a meditation walk that was 14 miles long, if I'm not mistaken. Is that still happening? And will it be happening soon? A lot of people have been asking because, you know, it's been a tradition of mine for, for many years where we take a group of people and walk from the Hermosa Pier to the Santa Monica Pier along the bike path and we do it at night. So it is uh, 14 miles. takes about four to four and a half hours. Right. It could take up to five if people are moving slow. Mm -hmm. And there's no rules. It's just an opportunity to uh, get out into the world, ocean air. And some people will use music. Some people are very chatty. I always encourage people to walk by yourself for at least a portion. Right. Uh, but it's a collective energy of people that are on a mission together. And it just brings a lot of joy. I've probably done it about 50 times in my 14 years. There was a period of time when I did it once a month right. for many, many years. And this was when I was uh, in, my, in my late 20s, you know, when I right. still had it like that. I could... 
have one terrible night of sleep and bounce back in no time, right? Now it's like, yeah, I used to do it from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. That wow. was the original meditation walk. My and God. we did that, yeah, we did that because um, the experience of walking through the night and having the sun come up as you hit Venice, Ooh, that's right? Nice. And having yeah. It's yep. incredible. That's the it's incredible, but I, I prefer that. The truth is, is that I don't do it that way because I'm, I'm older now. Right. There's people that are, no, I've aged. I have aged in the last 10 years. I am not, I cannot bodybuild anymore. I can't do the things that I used to do, okay? Right. I cannot pull an all-nighter. It would take me four days to, to bounce back from that. So it's seven to midnight, and even that, right. I need a full day of recovery. Will it be happening then, soon again? Are we, or is there one coming up? Yes. I mean, because yes. we, we can be outdoors now. I mean, right now things are starting to open up regardless, but um, let, yeah. let me know about that. Okay, I've done a few small non non open up ones. Right. It, uh, and, and I'm thinking about uh, like uh, maybe pulling you in and getting a, a crew together yeah. and doing a night walk. Let's I would love it. that. I would absolutely Let's love go. that. Let's go. Okay, so you're still younger than me, 10 years younger. So, you know, I went to the gym yesterday for the first time in a while because they opened. Um, of and, course. And so I want to go into that for, uh, and talk about that. So obviously at this point now, you're a nutritionist. You help people with true diets, right? Um, I want to know, uh, as far as growing up, did you yourself, David Wiss, did you suffer from body dysmorphia? Were you overweight? Did you have dietary issues, bad habits, bad habits Ooh, of eating? We're going to get into the good stuff today. <laughs> okay. You the nitty gritty. on the show. Yeah. You want to hear about my childhood body image issues? Let's go. I mean, I had them too, so I understand all too well. Yeah. I still do. I was, you know that. <laughs> fair enough. I was uh, I, I, I was overweight as a kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and from my assessment looking back, you know, there's a side of my family that has a genetic legacy of alcoholism and addiction, mm -hmm. right? I believe that I picked up on some of that biology. Mm -hmm and that uh, food did something for me that it didn't do for my brother, right? right? Who's like 19 months older than me. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being a little kid and having the experience of highly palatable food be extremely salient. And I would go to great lengths to make sure I got what I needed if I had to hide something. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I was um, overweight as a kid and I was also a late bloomer. Okay. So during those you know, years of 13, 14, when I had, you know, put on childhood weight from, from excessive snacking, highly palatable foods, mm -hmm. I also, my puberty wasn't hitting. Right. So I had a couple of years when I felt really uncomfortable in my body mm -hmm. and I wanted, I wanted to, you know, move into my adulter body, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to move through puberty faster and uh, that was challenging for me. So... Um, when you were going to school at USC before, in the, like in your youth, uh, was was this the type of, were you studying nutrition back then? Funny story. I uh, I know nutrition was a byproduct of my sobriety journey. Okay. So I studied, my goal in life was just to be rich. I didn't care what that looked like. Right. I was, you know, I tried to start in the, in the business school. I couldn't hack it. And then I switched over to the music industry program mm -hmm. because, you know, I was a, I was a drug user. And in my mind, that was a, 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 a career trajectory that could support some of my interests. Yes. Right. So I pictured myself working at one of these record companies with a briefcase. Like a producer. On. Like, a, like that's that L.A. dream, you know. Uh, it was the L.A. dream. That's right. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to open my briefcase and take a big rail. Yes. From, you know what I mean? <laughs> Right, and I was like, you know, I'll find talent, I'll put people on. That was the kind of fantasy for a little while, and I, sure. I lived that out in some ways. But um, I took a nutrition class at USC, okay. And um, you know, back in the day, USC, you know, I, I shouldn't say USC, but nutrition mm -hmm. has always been very just mathematical. You know, the the lens was purely kind of scientific. Nowadays, we know much more about nutrition as being linked to mental health and behavioral health, and mm -hmm. maybe we'll, we'll get into some of that. But at the class that I took right. was about calories. It was like an intro to nutrition. You learn about macronutrients, 
you learn how to track your food. They were like just learning right. how to track macros and vitamins and minerals. And the whole class was about, and USC is a, 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 a scientific university. Right. So the whole class, as I remember, was like, yeah, I want to learn about nutrition, but they wanted you to track your food. Okay. That was the class. And I couldn't do it because of my drinking and my using. Uh-huh. And they wanted you to go into a, uh, uh, you know, like this big chamber where you got your BMI measured. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it felt, um, in retrospect, it was a very, like, diety thing to do. I'm sure there was a lot of eating disorders that came out of that class unintentionally, right? Mm-hmm. They're like literally like weigh yourself, uh, calculate your BMI, put yourself on a diet, track your food. Like that was the, the class that I took. Right. And needless to say, I dropped out. It was a class that I dropped out because I couldn't do the assignment. So uh, the- And this is in recovery. Time, this was in recovery, right? No, USC was not in recovery. Oh, USC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before. This was early. Because you're, so, you're at UCLA right now. Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early days of my first experience. This is when you weren't well. Class, yes. I dropped out. Right. This is when you weren't yes. Right. It wasn't well. Okay, so let's see. When you got sober, how long into your sobriety did you decide to get back into the education system and go to back to school? And where did you go? Yeah, let me get to that, but I want to give you, I'll give you something a little juicy. Okay. This is something that give me something juicy. Hear. I always love juicy. Yeah. Because I was overweight as a child. Right. And, and because I was a late bloomer with puberty and I carried some trauma in living in a larger body that did not feel like home. Okay. When, when I got tweaked out and I got methed out and I had that skinny look, mm-hmm. I felt incredible. Same here. I understand it, it was, all too well. It was the thing that I was always wanting That's right. that I never had. I call it the methamphetamine diet. <laughs> it was that amphetamine I think it's diet. an important thing to say, especially for men, that they, those kind of concerns aren't okay. Yeah. But if you want to know the truth, like when I was now 19, 20, mm-hmm. and finally like arrived into my manhood and had a chiseled face, right. and I was sucked up, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. it was the look that I always want I understand it all too well I remember it and it was a major driver in my drug use mm-hmm. I actually I think I had started using meth for the sole purpose not not for the high but the sole purpose of shedding weight because I was coming off of steroids and I would eat a lot of food because I was smoking pot which would give me the munchies so I saw the people in our area some of our friends were you know, losing pounds. And I, and I thought like, I caught wind of it. I'm like, I got to try some of this. Next thing, next thing you know, I got this lady at work telling me, you look like you lost 10 pounds in the last three days. I'm like, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Like, I'm looking for that. I'm, I'm loving that. That's right. So, and, and you know, right. uh, I've had issues myself throughout my life. A, a yo-yo, if you will, like up and down in weight. There's times when I can get nice and chiseled. And then there's times when I feel like I'm overeating. And that, that has been a problem. And I know that, um, you as as a nutritionist, you professionally now. Well, let's let's talk about. Uh, you went to UCLA, or did you go to a different school? Yeah, thank you for that. So when I got sober in two thousand and six, uh-huh. in my previous uh, experiences in in treatment, mm-hmm. you know, I would come in and I would binge eat, and I would gain thirty pounds in thirty days. I would feel really gross because I was underweight coming in, mm-hmm. and I would you know have this. Uh, cross addiction to food. Right. I would sit around and just do coffee, cigarettes, highly palatable food all day long. Right. And uh, uh, when I finally got sober this time, one of the things that I did, which was different, mm-hmm. was I started exercising and I started thinking a little bit about what I put in my body. Those weren't things that I was able to previously consider. Right. And I think they're in part, it was because I knew that I wasn't going to stay sober for good and for all. Right. Like, I knew that I was like passing through sobriety. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really matter. Like I had a case I needed to present the, the certificate of completion from treatment to the judge. Right. But like eventually I would get back on the things that I really like to do. So I didn't need to care so much about things that might have an impact on my long-term future. Okay. But this time when I got sober, I was like really thinking, you know, what do people do that uh, have long successful lives? And it was like, oh, they drink water. Mm. They eat vegetables sometimes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, I had this moment. Healthy Maybe this stuff. Was the moment. Healthy Maybe stuff. Maybe this was the moment you yeah. were asking for. I was like, I wonder what could happen to me 
Hmm. If I like started lifting weights and drinking water and eating vegetables, like I, I, I became so curious about what was even possible for me. Right. Yeah. And uh, nutrition and exercise was a huge part of my early recovery. Right. And uh, you know, if I'm honest, like it was a, a high priority for me. And it got it, as I got you know results, I, I started to notice that the results weren't just oh. I was gaining muscle, sleeping better. Mm-hmm. My, you know, my 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 body felt more like home. Right. My brain was getting sharper. Mm. I had this endless foggy brain for so long from just being. Um, uh, I, I now know some of the biological mechanisms of inflammation that occurs in the gut that can cross the blood-brain barrier and mm-hmm. create neural inflammation and lead to uh, lethargy and depressive symptoms and all mm. that. I, I understand it all now. I definitely wouldn't have had at the time because science hadn't even unpacked it yet. Uh, but I, uh, I saw what it did to me. And my first real job in early recovery was a personal trainer. And I was helping people with nutrition-related stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I worked as a, as a tutor um, you know, with, with some high school kids, okay. which was a really cool job for someone like me you know, mm-hmm. with my background. Um, but the, the point is, is I got really into nutrition on a personal level right? and it drove me to, uh, seek out a career in it. Okay. I wanted to learn more about the link between nutrition and substance abuse. I wanted to learn about nutrition and mental health Okay, and all the time I'm working as a trainer, mm-hmm. probably got into it. This was now, you know, 2000. Seven, which is, is one, one, one year ago. into your sobriety. Yeah, I, I, I now and I probably got into graduate school when I was uh, two and a half or three years sober. I went to Cal State Northridge. Okay, um, they have a nutrition program, and I got rejected the first time I applied. Really, newly sober. I don't know what I'm. Trust me, I don't look good on paper. They looked at my USC. Oh, uh, transcript. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it, I had a, a year and a half off. My GPA from USC was 2.0. You have to get a 2.0 to graduate. So when I was sober, my first year, I went back to USC mm-hmm. and I had to take 20 units in order to graduate uh, with a social science economic emphasis. And uh, I had to get my GPA up to a 2.0. I had done so much damage. Mm. So I, I, think, I think it's possible, and I don't want to claim this, but it's possible that I have the lowest GPA of anyone to ever graduate from USC as an undergrad. <laughs> you can't graduate if you're under 2.0. Right. They don't let you, it's, it, you know, I don't, it wasn't even a 2.1. I, I got it up to a 2.0, you right. see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. I was right there on the cuff. And I was able to, to, to finish that, and now I'm trying to get into graduate school with that, okay? Right. Yeah, so, uh, to you know, my academic story is super fascinating because I then went from USC to SMC. I went back to community college after that. You went to SMC? Now, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, uh, because I switched careers completely. Right. I'm working as a trainer. I'm staying active in my own recovery. I'm working as a tutor. I got a small um, rent-controlled studio apartment in, in, in Santa Monica. And uh, I lost my driver's license from one of my old cases. The DMV refiled a thing on me. And I was like living the humble life, walking places. That's when the meditation walk started. I started walking a lot. Wow. And I learned that walking helped me meditate mm-hmm. because of my license being lost. I walked more and then I learned how to meditate. And here I am, now I share that kind of gift and message mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of people, very fortunately. I love but that. I had to go to SMC to take a bunch of units mm-hmm. so that I could bring my GPA up. And I had to take core science classes because my uh, bachelor's was in uh, social science, economics. So I didn't have uh, biology, chemistry. I didn't have all those classes that I needed to be a nutritionist. Right. So at two years sober, uh, I'm at SMC taking multiple core science classes. And it wasn't until I was three years sober that I finally got in mm. to Cal State Northridge to uh, uh, pursue a master's degree in nutrition and on the track to be a registered dietitian. So I got into that with the uh, status of I'm a personal trainer. I'm probably going to do some sports nutrition because that was the the male thing to do, mm-hmm. right? It was like the diet trajectory. 
Uh, but I quickly learned when I got there that this world of nutrition for mental health was completely untapped and that nutrition for drug addiction had never been researched. There was very few published articles on it. Right. I don't want to say it had never been researched, but there wasn't enough evidence to make it a thing. There was like a couple random studies. There had never been one real intervention mm -hmm. or a trial that right. showed, right? It was just a couple couple people that done their dissertation right. on this topic because they had a personal interest. They studied eating behaviors at a you know residential treatment center in upstate New York, mm -hmm. right? There was no real evidence of it. And, and, and so, no, knowing you, you probably were doing your own research to see who's done the research. Obviously, when you know that there's not much that's been done. It's, so, I mean, from what, you, from what I know about you, like you've taken it to another level, Dave. Like, like well, that's, that's what the academic thing teaches you to do. I wrote a master's thesis mm -hmm. called Nutrition and Substance Abuse. Right. And in order to do that, right, I had to really dive into everything that's ever been published, mm -hmm. right? Everything that's ever been written on the topic. Mm -hmm. I ended up collecting data from veterans at the uh, Westside VA uh, in, a, in a weight management program and, and, and found that people that had a history of uh, substance use disorder mm -hmm. were more likely to overeat when they were depressed, right? So there was a really small finding, nothing super big, but in the process of doing that, I learned about food addiction, I learned about eating disorders, and my whole world started opening up and I moved into the space of what we call behavioral health nutrition. Right. So I switched from, I'm a trainer mm -hmm. and I'm doing fitness. I mean, I could have totally gone on that career trajectory. Yes. I could have totally been like the celebrity trainer, nutrition person right. that was, you know, like able to do all those things. And I, my, my personality matches it. I could have been really successful. I, I bet you could. I know you could have. I could have been one of those macro, really successful fitness nutritionist that helps people get on stage to be a competitor, like a physique competitor. Right. And, and, and I think I was headed in that direction because of my own mild body image issues and my need to, to look good mm -hmm. and that that's what I was good at. So mm -hmm. therefore I'm going to teach that to other people. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, Pez, the universe had a different plan for me. I can tell. It was like, yeah. yeah, it was really quickly that I was going to get like, uh, pulled into this direction. The direction of helping was, people in recovery with their nutrition. That's the yes. direction. And so instead of moving into a space where it was already, uh, you know, kind of saturated, at least well established, mm -hmm. the nudge that I got from my creator was to move into a space that had never even really been tapped at all. Right. Right. To do something that's new, to be kind of a, a pioneer. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yes, I, uh, I founded Nutrition and Recovery as in my last year as a, as a dietetic intern, right. you know, I went back to the treatment center where I got sober in 2006. It's a nonprofit treatment center. And I was able to do some of my internship hours there by teaching nutrition classes, hmm. which was like my dream. Like how come I didn't learn some of this stuff when I was here? And then it was like, Oh, well, cause there's no one really to teach it. And then it was like, well, why don't I be the guy to teach it? That's right. right. And I came in and I built the curriculum and uh, we had such, I had such a powerful memory, such powerful experiences. I love that. I, I love Early recovery. You, 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 like were giving, you were truly giving back to the place where you were once. That's right. And that's right. Because you had a wealth of, or a growing wealth of knowledge that was, that was in effect. I absolutely love that. I, you know, if there's anybody that's that's watching this right now and you have any questions, I'm down to take a couple of questions. Um, and I, we've got this new uh, StreamYard app going on so that uh, we can, the question will actually come up on the screen. Feel free to ask a question if you'd like to. Um, but I do want to move into, so, so now when you, down the line when you became a registered dietitian, what does that entail? Like what comes with it? Does that mean that you're like a psychologist in the nutritional uh, field, like you have an office, like you have clients and uh, what kind of clients come to you if that's if that's what you were doing or what that's what you're doing currently? Yeah, thank you for that. So a registered dietitian nutritionist is a recognized healthcare professional okay. and it does fall under the classic Western medicine design, right? Okay. The, the paradigm, right? right? Which means that if someone's going to be a nutritionist that works in a hospital mm -hmm. or an elderly home or anywhere that there's insurance or any kind of real policy involved, right. it requires a registered dietitian, right? Okay. 
there's lots of other nutritionists out there, types of nutritionists. And I've seen, tra- I've seen a lot of nutritionists in the treatment centers, you know, like when we that you'll get a person that comes in and tries to help all the clients um, build their nutrition, uh, eat the right yes. types of foods and things like that. So yeah, there are various types. There's lots. Yes. And, and it's not a regulated term. So anyone could call themselves a nutritionist. The right. registered dietitian went through rigorous training, including organic chemistry, biochemistry, and then did uh, a full year of, of supervised practice in the field. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that makes it important is that a registered dietitian is, as a healthcare professional, does have the do no harm approach, right? right. So someone that um, might be coming in to do treatment, they might, like nutrition has a lot of potential to do harm, right? right? If someone has a firm belief about something and they, they want to teach other people how to be vegan mm-hmm. or something like that, and then like lo and behold, the young girl who went to an alcohol and drug treatment center right. uh, was told to become vegan and now she has anorexia nervosa and she's in the hospital, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. nutrition is a really sensitive thing because you have to understand the psychology of it, the socio-cultural components of it, mm-hmm. uh, the neuroscience, the gut health. And so being a registered dietitian was my kind of medical training mm-hmm. to enter into this space. But the formal training for uh, nutrition for mental health, I had to do on my own. Right. Right there, because it didn't exist, right? It didn't really exist in my curriculum, in my master's program. Mm-hmm. So being a person in recovery myself gave me an, an advantage, right? Because right. I understand recovery culture. Mm-hmm. And my original vision was that my practice, and we built a group practice, nutrition and recovery, where uh, I, I would train dietitians who, who came in under their internship right. to work in treatment settings, right? So we would come in, run groups, and then meet one-on-one with clients, and then also consult with the food service staff and maybe kind of match the menu to the curriculum. Mm-hmm. But really what it became over time, more than anything, was bridging the gap between eating disorder treatment and substance use disorder treatment. So a lot of people that have either co-occurring eating disorders or maybe eating disorder symptoms that emerge in early recovery um, end up needing to be to be seen. So my, my original fantasy of nutrition and recovery was that I would be working with people that had, you know, severe drug addiction that wanted to use nutrition in order to improve their mental health and thereby improve their chances of recovery. Mm-hmm. I was also really you know, excited to work with a lot of men because nutrition does have this feminine energy to it that I think, um, you know, definitely needs to be challenged and updated. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I worked with some people with muscle dysmorphia, steroid users, uh, early on. I still see some people like that, but the majority of the work that I do and we do mm-hmm. is working with people that have clinically significant eating disorders right. because that's who's seeking treatment. That's who's seeking a registered dietitian, nutritionist, right. more so than the average person who is having some indigestion or gut issues or is having some depressive symptoms, anxiety. People don't know if they have that, that they should see it see a registered dietitian or come see Dave Wisk. Right. It doesn't even cross most people's mind. It's not until someone has a eating disorder and they are in therapy that they're like, this is a problem. You have to go to treatment. We need to build you a treatment team. So yeah. And and eating disorders come in so many different forms. I mean, you have the bulimic, the perjur, the, the anorexic, uh, so many different variations of disorders when it comes to eating disorders. I remember when you and I in early pandemic started talking about uh, me and uh, what I thought, what I interpreted as me having an eating disorder, uh, you distinguished between what what a true disorder is and what, what an addiction to actually wanting to eat all the time is. It's not like, I mean, it could be seen as a disorder, but it's much different. I think uh, those types of disorders are life-threatening, health-threatening, definitely. Not to say like me, overeating isn't life-threatening and health-threatening, definitely it is, and you help me immensely. Um, but I'm sure you see a lot of a lot of uh, people that come to you that, that need to, to be, to, have, to build their knowledge base and also to, to implement a certain type of 
dietary habit in their lifestyle or to try to get them back from anorexia or or to get them to try to stop uh, you know purging and, and be, being bulimic and and, and um, I know that I've worked in some treatment settings where I, I truly believe some of the treatment centers I worked at were not equipped to have these types of clients but had these types of clients and and the, and the the good players the one that really knew like you know what we 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 made a mistake bringing this person in with a primary eating disorder um this is what we've actually come to the conclusion we need to refer them to a place that specializes in this as opposed to keeping them here because uh we don't have somebody that monitors the refrigerators and things like that at night so um this is a big deal it's really a big deal and i and i it's very common you know, I, I've worked in treatment for a long time. I've seen a lot of people that come in with hardcore addictions to drugs and alcohol, but on the back end, there, there's a lot of lot of uh, eating disorders that come into effect too. And, and it should be uh, definitely talked about a lot more. I don't think enough people do. And I think that's why a lot of people shame themselves and hide it and, 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 uh, or, or don't really talk about it. I remember there was one girl in a treatment center where we were at, they required her to uh, let us know if she was purging. And she actually did, which I thought was really big of her, right? Like she didn't have to say that stuff, but, um, but it w- probably would have been better if they had referred her to a, a more adequate and appropriate center that could specialize in that. Right. So um, a lot of people have asked me my opinion on why there's so much of that overlap, right? And factors that set people up to have these types of disorders, whether it be early life adversity or other family system dynamics, etc. But I've offered reasons why there's so many people with eating disorders in addiction treatment centers. Right. And I think one of the best uh, explanations that I've been able to come up with is that eating disorder treatment outcome rates are, are, are not good. Right. And so a lot of people that have eating disorders have been to eating disorder treatment or have heard about eating disorder treatment mm-hmm. and they do not want to go there. Oh. So for them, it's like this ultimate, like it's like an ultimate opportunity to be seeking treatment, to be mm-hmm. getting help, right. but to find a place that doesn't specialize in that, where they can still be in their other disorder, mm-hmm. right? right? And they're essentially like hiding out in addiction treatment. Mm. And that's a thing that most people are not aware of. They're like, oh, well, they have an addiction, but they also have this. Where do we send her? Do we keep her or, uh, or him, right? There's a lot of cases where I think people have primary eating disorders and know they don't want to go to eating disorder treatment. Right. And they want to go, they need to go to treatment. So they end up in an addiction place mm-hmm. where you know, it can be a problem if the addiction place is like super into healthy eating and juicing and exercising. It's almost like a dream come true right. for the eating disorder client. Now, all of a sudden, I can come in. I like the eating disorder treatment that I could have gone to. They're going to make me not exercise and they're going to make me eat Cheetos and ice cream. Mm. The addiction treatment center, we're going to go spinning and juicing <laughs> and I can be on a gluten free diet. What do you think the the young client's going to choose. Right? <laughs> and so a lot of people with eating disorders gravitate towards addiction treatment because there is a wellness component, which is very different right. than you would see in an eating disorder treatment center. Mm. So someone like me, my skill set is that I could see where the value in promoting healthful eating and healthful exercising would be right for one client, mm. but it would be problematic for the next. Mm. And, and that's why someone needs like a, a level of training, expertise, and nuance to be able to say this client needs one-on-one and we need to do really specific work for this part of their disorder. They have a long history of being restrictive and this needs to be addressed this way versus, you know, scaling everyone and addressing them the same way. Okay. So we have Sherry. She has asked something. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, she I think her name is pronounced Sherry. Can Dave go into food addiction versus eating disorder? Uh, number two, first step to improving gut health person in recovery. Number three, do you believe people can address bipolar disorder type two with nutrition? Want to answer that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, such great questions. Thank you for, for joining and uh, participating. I, I spent a lot of time talking about the difference between food addiction and eating disorder. And it's such an important topic. Uh, you know, I, I, I've come to learn that people that work in the eating disorder space do not like the concept of food addiction because it doesn't match the classic eating disorder paradigm. 
But if you were to ask people who worked in eating disorder treatment, like, do you believe food addiction is real? I would predict that uh, a majority of them would say, no, it's a bogus thing. Mm -hmm. But if you were to ask people in recovery from drug addiction and people that worked in substance use disorder treatment, like, do you think food addiction is a real thing? Everyone would be like, yeah, of course, right? Right. Of course it's a real thing. It's like the most well-known thing that we know. So there's this really big split between these two camps. There's like people that believe that that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that believe it's not actually a thing and that it's a byproduct of dieting, right? Because that's what they see in their eating disorder clients. So I noticed early on that there's these two camps that really see things differently. And so I put a lot of effort in, a scholarly effort, and as well as in my clinical circles to try to bridge the gap between the two and say that there doesn't have to be a dichotomy there. We can look at things as a both and rather than an either or. Mm -hmm. We can look at how these things intersect and really think about how they're different, right? And so, you know, to answer the question, how, how are are they different? There's a lot of times when someone will have symptoms of, of both, and it'll be really hard to figure out, like, which one is it? Mm-hmm. There's people that are proposing uh, food use disorder and to think about food addiction as an, its own d- disorder. But, you know, typically eating disorders involve other forms of psychopathology. Right. And so, you know, someone with a food addiction may or may not have body image disturbance, may or may not have um, perfectionistic traits or be, a, you know, perhaps a calorie counter or have strong, persistent ideals around how one should look or uh, be situated in society. Whereas someone with an eating disorder might be way more focused on some of those things based on their other underlying factors. So, an eating disorder is a uh, mental health diagnosis, mm. right? Which makes it a mental health issue, uh, not so much just about the food, right? So in the eating disorder space, a common thing you hear is it's not about the food, right? But like with food addiction, if you're thinking about a real addictive disorder, it might mean that someone needs to give a little bit more attention to the biology of the food that they're eating, right? So it is more so about the food. Right. And that's one area what I what I've used to discern. Uh, last thing I'll say about it is that I also think about the temporal sequence mm-hmm. of it, like what came first. You know, uh, if there's addiction in the picture, other addictions, cross addiction. I've written a few papers recently, and uh, would be happy to share those resources with everyone. I, I created an eight step process and a table mm-hmm. of how one can discern food addiction from. Uh, from dietary restraint, which is restrictive eating, commonly associated with eating disorders. I love it. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. So um, hmm. I would like to. So you you do have a private practice, correct? Correct. And you are out of Los Angeles, Santa Monica. Yes, area. West LA, but y'all know the vibe. We we global now. Uh, <laughs> I see people all over the world. It's really cool uh, being able to work with anyone anywhere. And uh, yeah, Nutrition in Recovery is uh, the website. So that's nutritioninrecovery.com. You can send a contact um, query there. I always get back to people right away. I'm pretty responsive on my social media, Instagram. I put out videos. I've been getting the TikTok thing started. What's your TikTok handle again? Do Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah, David A. Wiss. So that's my first name, David, middle initial A, and then W I S S is my handle at TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, I'm probably gonna get my Twitter going again soon. I've been a little lazy there. I wanna use it for my academic stuff. Mm. You know, I, I don't wanna be the guy that does the same exact thing on all of my channels. I wanna uh, use them Very for slightly different things. Yes. yes, so that's what I'm working on now, trying to figure out which lane is which. You know, my Facebook is very much like personal life and my recovery world. Mm-hmm. Instagram, I've done the nutrition and the recovery thing and I'm trying to figure out all this stuff, but I'm taking notes from you, sir. You're doing a great job. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I got to say, this has been the longest podcast that we've had yet. And I knew it probably would be because you always have, you know, so much, so much to bring to the table. And it was nice today to hear your transparency and hear you talk about your upbringing, who you were, where you're from, the family life, um, you know, the drug use, your recovery process, how you got into school at a very young age. I, I had a feeling you were probably pretty smart, even in your youth. I mean, then this didn't just all happen. You know, what's really cool is to, to hear today uh, your transition from being a, a personal trainer 
trainer and, and try to help people out with their nutrition, w knowing you now and knowing how much you know, because you know a lot. Like when I hear you and I see the things that you that you speak on or what you write about, uh, there you know a lot. You've done a lot of studying. So and it's not just that I think research based stuff to where you get to uh, come up with your own interpretations or your own ideologies rather than the typical stuff that's being put out there and used. I don't I know and this would be for a whole other show, but I know like you're not a fan of a lot of different uh, types of diets like keto and paleo and all those things. And we, we can talk about that in another episode. But uh, today was fruitful. It was amazing. Uh, I, I love and adore you. I really value our friendship. I, I think we, we share some of the same values in our lifestyles. We are about helping people. I'm really happy that you didn't become some celebrity, uh, you know, Recovering trainer. Like trainer yeah. or anything like that. You're, yeah. help, you're helping a lot of people, and I do believe that you help more people than you know. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful that you were on uh, the Recovery Corner today, Peggy's Recovery Corner, and I, I hope to have you on in future episodes. Uh, do you have anything you want to say before we yeah, phase the, out? Yeah, the, the last part of my academic journey has been so interesting because most people don't know this, but the PhD that I've been doing is actually not related to nutrition. So after being a master's level registered dietitian and working in the field, I, I, I'm finishing my PhD in public health. So I study community health sciences, epidemiology, and I'm minoring in health psychology. My dissertation actually has nothing to do with nutrition. I'm collecting data on early life adversity and mental health. So I've been able to move through all of that and then broaden into this bigger space. So I'm landing and finding my uh, next chapter in a really exciting way. So thank you for celebrating that all with me. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You're my favorite scientist and a really dear friend. Awesome, thank you so much, Dave, for coming out today.